read the news this past week. The Supreme Court draft opinion that got released or leaked, signaling that Roe v. Wade could potentially be overturned. People from all sides on social media are, are posting about it. It's a, it's a firestorm, and it's probably only going to get more heated in the coming months. And I find that the timing of it all is a little bit ironic, given that it was so close to Mother's Day, and today is Mother's Day. Our, our passage this morning isn't on any of this, but, and I promise we'll get to it in a moment, but I, I do feel the need to take a few minutes to talk about this and for us to pray. I'm not going to presume to, to know how each one of you feels about this recent news about the draft majority opinion. Certainly there are a lot of questions and concerns, valid ones, surrounding the consequences of overturning or not overturning Roe v. Wade. The care for women who find themselves in difficult, perhaps even dangerous situations. The protection of babies themselves, of life, but also the heavy responsibility of raising them. I'm not sure that God gives us a really clear step-by-step manual for how policies should be made in terms of how abortion should be limited or prevented, whether it be incremental or immediate. But God does speak clearly about the evil of abortion. And I know that that in and of itself might be something that is hard to swallow for some of you. Arnold Kleen, he's an economist, and he suggests that our disagreements when it comes to topics like these tend to be based on fundamentally different views of, different visions of how the world works. And so he proposes this this three-axis model. Some see the world uh, as a conflict between civilization and barbarism. Those tend to be conservatives. Uh, Some others see it as a conflict between oppressors and the oppressed. Those tend to be liberals. Not always the case, but... And then still, a third category, some people see it as a conflict between freedom and power. And he calls the people in that group libertarians. Now, we tend to hear arguments made from one's own worldview of how the world works, of how they view this conflict, but they don't always connect or, uh, yeah, they don't always connect because the person you're speaking to has an entirely different way of seeing how the world works. I want to propose this morning that we think about this topic of abortion through the lens of the gospel, right? as we, as those of us who profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior should always do with every topic. But we apply that lens onto this specific worldview of oppressors and oppressed. Because I, I feel like when I read, maybe in my social media news feed, the, these posts and these news articles, that's how a lot of people are framing the discussion. It's drenched in the language of oppressors and oppressed. One people group versus another people group, even if those terms aren't used explicitly. Now, in his book, The The Coddling of the American Mind, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Setting Up a Generation for Failure, this book was written by secular social psychologist Jonathan Haidt. He presents three great untruths that have become woven into our education, our upbringing, our culture, even our parenting. One of these untruths, the third one, is the untruth of us versus them. That life is a battle between good people and evil people. 
that it's very black and white. So the human mind, he posits, is hardwired to sympathize with members of our in-group and distrust members of an out-group. We as Christians are not immune to that, right? We live in a fallen world where we're sinners. It is natural for all of us as humans for us to draw lines even when there are none to begin with. Now, what does the gospel have to say about this us versus them mentality? What does the Bible have to say about oppressors and, uh, and being oppressed? About sinners and sufferers? Surprisingly, I, I think the, the gospel, the, the, the Bible makes a point that is pretty similar to the point that Height is making. That it's a little bit more nuanced than that, that people can actually be both oppressor and oppressed. That people can be both a sinner and a sufferer. And this nuance is important, especially when we consider all the stuff that is being framed surrounding this discussion about abortion. That it's this us versus them mentality that one group is oppressed, and that's that. Now, in our world, and even in the Bible, I think that regardless of our political persuasion, most of us would agree that love is attractive. What is love? Love is, in some regards, putting others ahead of yourselves. It is willing the other person's good. It is sacrificial. Like, we heard all the sharing from Charlene, Tina, and Angela about sacrificial love, about being a mom. That's what we, we're honoring God today through honoring our mothers and their love for us. Love is selflessness, not selfishness. And now we know, and by we I mean non-Christians and Christians, we know we ought to do that even when we fall short, and we fall short a lot of the time. I think most of us, most people would agree, uh, and I think in this world, that there's a general principle that we ought to care for those who are most vulnerable, of those who are most dependent, of those we might view as oppressed. This is not to negate other people who, who might also fall into that category. Now, in 2012, there was, uh, you might have read the news back then, it was a long time ago, but there was the Costa Concordia cruise ship, right? There was that disaster, the, the ship hit a rock, it capsized, and a bunch of people died. Now, it turns out that the captain had jumped ship, or at least that's how the news was reporting, and people were outraged, rightfully so, because these passengers depended on their captain to lead them to safety, but instead, he was one of the first to reach land. Contrast that with another story, not a boat, but a plane, three years earlier. Miracle on the Hudson, where Captain Sully had to do an emergency landing for his plane on the Hudson River. He hit a bird and he had to uh, land the plane. And the, the plane was taking on water. Some the people were trying to evacuate near the back. They opened the rear door and water came coming in. So they rushed to the front of the plane to evacuate. And the, the captain, though he's at the front, he could be the first to leave. He was not. Captain Sully walked the cabin twice as the water was filling up to his waist just to make sure it was empty before he was the last one to leave. And in comparing these two stories, we find that one captain was internationally shamed and the other was lauded as a hero because he prioritized the needs of those who depended on him. 
when it comes to this very difficult, challenging topic of abortion, these babies are completely and utterly dependent. Right? That's what makes it so hard going through pregnancy, giving birth, being a mom. The high cost of it all. No one is disputing that. Actually, that's probably one of the reasons why there's so much disagreement. It's what do we do with that now that there's a cost, a high cost? But in our world and in the Bible, we know we ought to be other-oriented. I would reckon that if you ask anyone on the street, they would say, yeah, that's a good thing. That is something that we would strive for. We know that we ought to prioritize the needs of those who are most vulnerable, of those who are most dependent. Stephanie Gray, founder of Love Unleashes Life, she says this. I find it kind of rather appropriate, given that today is Mother's Day. Every single one of us on our bodies has a belly button, which is a reminder that every one of us was a child in the womb. And I would add this morning to that, that some of you remember being in the delivery room, taking the pair of scissors and cutting off the umbilical cord off of your son or daughter. The very thing that represents the thing that is tying the child and showing that that child is utterly, utterly helpless and frail and weak and vulnerable and dependent on the mother. And she continues, We were once weak and vulnerable and our powerful mothers could have decided to dominate and destroy us by saying, This is your body given for me. But instead, in an act of love, our mother said, This is my body given for you. These are the very words that Jesus said the night he was betrayed. These are the words that we say every month when we partake in communion together. These are the words, this is my body given for you, that point to the cross, where Jesus, Jesus gave up his right. Jesus gave up his body for us so that we might live. We who are both oppressor and oppressed, we who are sinner and sufferer, we who are utterly, utterly dependent on him, he gave it all up. Though he was the son of God, he gave it all up to the point of death, even death on a cross, so that you and I might have life. And so we, especially as Christians, are called to live those lives of sacrificial love, and also to celebrate and advocate for that kind of love. Because we know, we know that that kind of sacrificial love will lead to human flourishing, will lead to the betterment of the world that God has created, the world that we live in. So will you join me in prayer? God, our Father, our hearts break at the silencing of beating hearts. Our hearts break at the increasing polarization of our society and the collapse of communication, the absence of grace and empathy and understanding. We do not presume to know what is the wisest and most sound approach to protecting both woman and child. But we know that your word to us is that we are made in your image from the youngest one of us in the womb to the oldest one of us about to go into the tomb. We have worth and dignity, not because of who we are, but because of whose we are. And we are yours. And so we pray for our government. 
for our country, its leaders, for the Supreme Court justices. And we simply ask that you would give them wisdom. You would give them your truth. We pray for your church. We pray for this church. That by your word and your spirit, help us to be salt and light in this world. Help us to be known as your disciples who, uh, by our sacrificial love for one another. Imprint the gospel on our hearts and our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, now let's turn to our passage. You know, despite starting off a, a bit heavy this morning, and I, thank you for allowing me space to do that, although you didn't really have a choice. But I, I do want to wish you all a, a happy Mother's Day. You know, I, I want to thank Charlene and, and Tina and Angela for spending some time this past week out of their busy, crazy schedules as mothers to come in and record the video we watched earlier to bless us with their sharing and to encourage the rest of us. This goes without saying, it's actually been said a lot, of t- a lot already, that it's not easy being a mom. Right? Moms serve tirelessly, living out what Paul writes in Philippians of doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than themselves, looking not to, only to their own interests, but to the interests of others. Moms carry multiple roles, as we know. They nurture, they disciple, they cook, they clean, they work, whether it's at a company or a school or at home. Then there's also being a follower of Jesus now, and that adds a whole other layer that permeates everything else. Because as we heard, it's not just raising your kids now, it's raising them in the Lord. It's, it's not just teaching them how to, to feed themselves, it's discipling them to know how to feed themselves spiritually. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at a particular mom in the Bible. We're going to be talking about Mary, Jesus' mom. So I invite you to turn with me to two passages uh, in your pew Bibles or in front of you or on your phone. Uh, the two passages are John 2, 1 to 5, and John 19, 25 to 27. This is the uh, first and last interaction that Jesus has with his mother in the Gospel of John. So we're looking at these two episodes, and they frame Jesus' public ministry. One happens at the beginning, one happens at the end. And as we look at these episodes, there's a certain continuity and even development between these two conversations. So as I read aloud, I encourage you to follow along. Notice how these two passages compare. So I'll give you 10 seconds if you need to find a pew Bible, or you can look on the screen behind me. John 2, 1 to 5. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. The mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, and do whatever he tells you. Fast forward now to John 19, 25 to 27. But standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. 
Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. We see in the second passage, Jesus is nailed to the cross. He is hanging there, suffering and pain and agony as his own mother looks on. You know, how, can you imagine how hard it has to be for mom to see her own child suffer? To see her child die? The very child that she loved, nurtured, gave birth to, and raised up. All things equal, this is not the natural order of things in this fallen world. It's usually the other way around, right? That a a son or daughter to bury his mother and not a mother to bury her son or daughter. But either way, it's tremendously sad and, and painful. And in this last dialogue with his mother, we see Jesus teaching us two things. And revealing something to us about Mary and her role. First, at the cross, Jesus is redefining motherhood in terms of discipleship. So follow with me here. Notice where Mary is standing here in verse 25. She's at the cross. And unlike the other disciples, they're nowhere to be seen except for the disciple who, who Jesus loved. But the other disciples, they left. They deserted Jesus. But Mary is right there with him. And where they are, her and these other women, what they do stand in contrast even to the soldiers who came right before, who crucified Jesus, who are dividing up his garments right then and there. But looking at Mary and where she's been, where she's at right now, it's been a journey for her. Right? Mary, uh, one scholar put it this way, that Mary, the mother of Jesus, had to learn that her relationship to Jesus as a disciple was more important than her relationship to him as a mother. If we're comparing these two passages in John, two words kind of stand out that are repeated. Do you see what I'm saying? Woman and hour. So in both passages, Jesus addresses his mother as woman. All right, let's be honest, it looks bad. Like, Jesus sounds really misogynistic right now and really condescending. I'll be honest with you, it sounds even worse in Greek. The word for woman in Greek is gune. Jesus saying, gune, what does this have to do with me? I don't know if he said it that way, but that's how I envision, right? So please don't let today's takeaway be for you to respond to your mother after service, gune, what does this have to do with me? Otherwise, I pray that your moms are filled with a lot of grace and mercy. There is a specific point to how Jesus is addressing his mother. And the application point is not, this is not how you are to address your own mother. But look, woman or gune, it's not as condescending as our 21st century years might take it to be. It's still a term of respect. It's still a term of, it's still courteous. It's not typically what a, mom, a son would use to address his mom. And so it's kind of hard to find a good translation, right? Some translation used woman, but it feels a little bit distant and feels really condescending. You know, we could use maybe lady, as in ladies and gentlemen, but we could still take it in a very condescending way. Ma'am might work if we're in a culture where children are calling their mothers like that, and I don't think we are because we're in Boston, The point here, though, right, is that Jesus is trying to distance himself from his mom when she makes this request in John 2. 
Why? John 2, Jesus and disciples are at a wedding that his mother is also at. The wine had run out. And look, this would be incredibly embarrassing in an honor and shame culture. And I kind of get that. Every time we have one of those Crossbridge barbecues, my worst fear is that we run out of you know, enough hot dogs and, and burgers. So Mary approaches Jesus as a mother to ask him to, to do something about it, to be resource, resourceful as a son. And so what is Jesus' response? Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. The hour Jesus is talking about is the crucifixion, the cross. Mary doesn't understand that. Mary, as a mom, doesn't understand that what she is asking him to do, which is to perform this first miracle at this wedding, turning water to wine, is going to set him on a path to the cross. It will begin his public ministry, which will end, at that point, in his public crucifixion. Mary kind of has her own timing, her own plan, her own agenda, and she comes to Jesus as a mom who needs help, and that's okay. But Jesus, in his dialogue with his mother, shows that his timing and his mission is according to God's will, not according to anyone else, even if it is his own mom. So Jesus' mother, what what does she do? She, She shakes off the gentle rebuke, responds with a display of faith that is really content to leave the matter into Jesus' own hands. So she says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Fast forward now, 17 chapters later, at the foot of the cross, Mary is there. Jesus is about to die, and as part of his last words, he ends up, he's caring for his mom both as a son and as a savior. As a son, he's making sure that there is still someone who can continue to care for her. That's going to be the beloved disciple. But as a savior, notice, Jesus still calls her gune, woman, man. Hanging there on the cross, Jesus is intent not to renew this filial bond, but to confirm her in her relationship to him as a disciple. Mary is standing there with a beloved disciple, most most likely John, and Jesus says to each of them, Behold your son. Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. The same word there for hours, same thing that Jesus mentions in John 2. And in that hour, Mary doesn't cease to be a mom. She's still a mom, but she also continues to be a mom of a different sort. One commentator put it this way, that Mary learns that she is to be a mother as a disciple, not a mother and also a disciple. Not two different hats, like I put on my disciple hat, then take it off and put on my mother hat. The commentator said, discipleship must be the larger context in which her role as mother is delimited and defined. Again, these weren't two distinct roles that Mary had to wear, mother and disciple, but rather, as a disciple, she was to be a mother. It's hard enough today, some of us feel the tension between our different roles. Can you imagine how difficult it must be for Mary, whose son is Jesus? Mary, again, had to learn that her relationship to Jesus as disciple was more important than her relationship to him as a mother. One is more important than the other. One informs the other. Not to say that, you know, she doesn't seize being a mom anymore than she seizes being a disciple. 
Mary is a, a model of faith for mothers today, I believe. Mary is someone who struggled with the relationship between her physical and spiritual roles. Now, true, not, none of the rest of us gave birth to the Messiah, but there may be times where we, particularly moms, feel the tension between our relationship as a disciple of Jesus and our relationship as, as a mom. At the cross, Jesus places motherhood within this larger context for discipleship. He does it for his own mom, and he does it for every mom. There's a second thing that we find. At the cross, Jesus enlarges our focus from a physical family to a faith family. And so what's interesting here is that Jesus is entrusting his mom not to his brothers, but to his beloved disciple. And that's strange. Like, we know that Jesus had siblings. Would have made sense for his siblings to take on that responsibility of caring for his mom. Jesus doesn't do that. We know probably at that point his brothers uh, didn't, didn't believe in who Jesus was. In Matthew 19, 29, Jesus says, And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my namesake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Now, that this hundredfold that we're, he's talking about, I'm, I don't think he's necessarily talking simply about eternal life, but the future. How can someone leave their brothers and sisters and children and parents and still gain a hundredfold? I think Jesus is talking about the church. He's talking about a new family, a family of faith, a a faith family that Jesus' own mother enters into, not because she's the mother of Jesus, but because she's a disciple of Jesus, who is still a mother. And it is this family in which she continues to be a mother, mother to the rest of her children, but also a spiritual mother too, helping to make disciples and mature disciples. So what, does, what Jesus does is he takes these two people who are not biologically or blood-related and he tells them to be a family that is not united by their own blood, but by the blood of Jesus. Add to that, they say blood may be thicker than water, but the spirit is thicker than blood. I think to some extent, too, Mary is a model of faith, not only for moms, but for spiritual mothers, too, in this faith family. The church is not like a family. It is a family. And what Jesus does is, in his case, is he entrusts his own mother to his disciples, people who share the same concerns and beliefs and values and ways as Jesus. They adopt those things as their own, and they follow in his footsteps, taking up their own crosses, living that life of sacrificial love. Being a mom is hard. Being a disciple is hard. And the intersectionality of motherhood and discipleship is probably even harder. In those moments, there is hope, there is comfort, there is peace in God. Let's pray. 
Gracious Father, we give thanks to you for your goodness to us. We give you thanks for blessing us with the moms in our lives, whether they are our biological moms or our adoptive moms or our spiritual moms, Lord. We pray that you would strengthen these moms, give them your grace to do your work, to live for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.